Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. We're in the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter three, where I will be reading from verses one through six. Hebrews three, verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, as we open your holy word, we, we thank you that it's perfect, God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So would you open it up now to us, Lord, that we might see the depth of what you have here for us, that we may be made different even this day for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Consider... Jesus, every Sunday, that's our prayer. You would come to this place and you would consider Jesus. I was with a couple Friday night who were new to our church and they spoke of one of the first impressions they had of this church and it was of the generations. The little ones being born even this week, soon to be baptized, A little one singing today to the glory of God, celebrating a man's life for 100 years is really a remarkable thing to be part of. And that's what I want us to really understand. Coming to Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior is indeed a personal thing. It's a personal relationship. But it is so much more. It's so much more than just you and Jesus. It's so much more than just your individualistic approach to the Lord and understanding of your union with Christ. It's so much more, and that's what you see in this letter. Whenever we're studying a book of the Bible, we're trying to understand what the audience who first received this letter, or in this case, this sermon, what they were experiencing. When I was being trained to preach, Brian Chapel at Covenant Theological Seminary called this the fallen condition focus, the FCF. And what that meant was you were looking for that which we have in common with those two or four or by whom the passage was written. What do we have in common with those who are in this little house church that received this letter we call Hebrews? But it goes on further to say, not only what do we have in common with those two or four or by whom it was written, but what does it require in terms of grace from the passage? And what you're going to see very quickly here is that this preacher, this pastor of this small house church, 
knows that the people that he's leading are tempted to flee. They're tempted to depart from the faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation because the storms of suffering are coming. The storms of suffering coming from persecution. The fear that if they profess faith in Jesus, they may be abducted, arrested, beaten, or even killed. They know that those who have trusted in Christ before them have experienced such things. And so as the mounting storm of suffering and persecution comes, as the fear of that persecution rises, they are being tempted to put their confidence and their hope in something or someone other than Jesus. And so he speaks early in this letter to make much of Jesus, talking about the supremacy of Christ, Christ's superiority. And now he begins this chapter, chapter three, by saying, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now the word consider here means to pay deep and diligent attention. It means to, to fix your eyes, which means to fix your mind upon who Jesus is. Last week when I was preaching from Hebrews 2.18, the last verse in chapter two, it's about temptation. And the great temptation for them was to flee from Christ. The great temptation for them was to, to no longer believe that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So he presents this picture of Jesus, our high priest, who suffered greatly when he was tempted. And we ended the sermon, or the worship service, with that wonderful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Again, those words aren't just a sweet chorus, but they're a, an application, an exhortation to fix your eyes on Christ, to set your mind diligently upon who he is, what he accomplished, what he is accomplishing now. And so the application from this text, the preacher gets too quick. Consider Jesus. I want that to be true of all of us. Every Sunday, every day, consider Jesus. Fix your mind diligently on him. Because just like this people, just like them, we are tempted to put our confidence and our hope and something or someone other than Jesus, especially when the threat of suffering, whether it's through persecution or even some other form of suffering, we're tempted to not trust in Christ alone. So what this preacher does is very interesting. And I want you to think, because it begins to talk about Moses, that it somehow gets cluttered with history that doesn't make much sense, because that's not true. This is really powerful. It's really hard for us to understand how much these people thought of Moses. But this preacher knows that the temptation to move away from Christ, to put their courage and their hope in someone else, 
really is reverting back to Judaism. It's reverting back to a man that all of Israel revered. And so he begins by saying, consider Jesus. He says in verse two, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So what he's doing, when he says consider Jesus, is he's gonna make a comparison. And so he says, I want you to consider Jesus. And as you consider Jesus, I want you to compare him to someone else that you are tempted right now to put your confidence and your hope in. And so he says, Moses, he was faithful too. He was called. Now they would have understood this because their affection of Moses was very, very high. And it should have been. Moses had a miraculous calling. Think of his life. He was chosen by God to be the deliverer of the people of Israel. Even as a baby, set in the basket, floating down the river, his mother still being able to nurse him, the miracle of God's providential hand at work. And then Moses is calling to be one who had so much esteem, that calling coming from the burning bush. Moses is a man who is extremely faithful to be the deliverer that God called him to be. Frightened of that task, he speaks honestly, boldly to the Lord. The Lord uses him still. He then goes before Pharaoh. Plague after plague unfolds. Moses is in the one finally that leads them out from Egypt. And there he's confronted with the sea and the army behind him. And there the sea parts. And he leads the people of Israel across this dry land. From Exodus 25 to 30, Moses is spoken of in 22 different references to his faithfulness. And at the very end of Deuteronomy, in this subtle epitaph, here's what it says about Moses. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 34. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And so the preacher knows that this people revered Moses. And as they're tempted to turn away from Jesus, they're tempted to look back at Moses, to revert back to Judaism, to no longer identify themselves with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what does the preacher do? He speaks about Jesus being superior. Verse three, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So now in this comparison, he's beginning to, to say this, as you consider Jesus, I want you to compare Jesus to Moses. Moses was great, 
Moses was faithful. He was a servant. In fact, the servant word here is the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. It's a word that really elevates the commitment as a servant, as a slave, but beyond that, that Moses had to God. But he's going on to say, but, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is the one who fulfilled everything that Moses spoke of. Jesus was the one who fulfilled all that was pointing to the promise of a coming redeemer, a savior. Jesus is supreme. He then takes the comparison of Moses and Jesus to this interesting illustration of a house. He says in verse three, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, there's that word, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So here's the comparison. When God is referring to the house, he is referring to a people. And the people are what make the house. We have to see it through the way in which they would have seen it. For them to understand that they belonged to a people, that they were part of something bigger than themselves, would have brought great comfort when tempted to flee. But this preacher is saying, there is a house. And this house, like it was with Moses, is God's house. What Moses did was to be a servant in the house. But the house now, since my son who is supreme has come, is being run by one who is not a servant in the house, but a son who is over the house. And more than that, a house is built by someone, but God is the builder of all things. And the builder of all things is my son. And then he says, and this is amazing, and we are his house. We are his house. This church, one small expression of the house of God. This church, made up of individuals who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, collectively come into a body in which Jesus Christ is the head, the son over the house not just a servant in the house. And then he says, we, we are his house. One of the themes in this letter, in this sermon, is that your relationship to God, which is nothing more, but so much more ultimately, is union with Christ. If you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, knowing because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life that you, you need a savior and you've heard of Jesus and you know now he's the only one, then when you prayed that prayer, 
You entered into a relationship with Christ that is permanent and it's primary. All of us have many different identities, but only one identity is permanent and only one identity is primary. And the reason we have to recognize that is because when suffering comes, whether it's from persecution or whether it's from some other form of, of suffering in our life, we are tempted, just like they were, to put our confidence in another identity, a lesser identity, to boast in a lesser hope. For them, somebody began to say, I think we should turn back. Remember Moses? Remember who Moses was, what Moses did? And all of a sudden, when the storm of persecution was rising, when the threat of what might happen to a spouse or to children, to friends, to neighbors, to others who belong to this little church, that lure to put their confidence back was strong. When you face sufferings, does your primary identity in Christ rise in supremacy? Does your permanent identity in Christ give you security? Is Jesus enough in those moments? Or are you tempted to surrender to a lesser identity. Yes, you are, just like me. And because of that, we see what we have in common. We see a preacher who knows what his people are tempted to trust in, tempted to put their confidence in, tempted to put their boasting in, their hope in. And he says, consider Jesus. That's it. Consider Jesus. The choir's anthem today was very, very powerful because it shows us something that we need to do continually in our life in Christ, and that is to repeat. Repeat the truth. If you are in Christ, you are permanently his. If you are in Christ, you have a primary identity. And that union with Christ is far more than just your individualistic relationship with him. It is a relationship that goes beyond you to a connection to this body and to other brothers and sisters throughout all time. That's amazing. In a wonderful, really powerful book on union with Christ, written by a PCA pastor named Rankin Wilburn, near the end of his book, he speaks about this union. I want to read something to you that I think is very powerful. He says, this means, speaking of our union with Christ, this means Christ is not just your individual savior, who came to save you from your individual sins and then whisk you away from this world. Rather, Jesus is the king of all creation, 
who in the most unlikely place and in the most unlikely fashion, unmasked, disarmed, and defeated these opposing powers with his own bleeding hands. The opposing powers being those cosmic forces of evil from Ephesians 6. By death, he defeated death. We just sang it. Death was crushed to death. By death, he defeated death and the one who has the power of death. This means that all the structures that are so important to our daily lives, and these are important, listen carefully, our families, our careers, our companies, our nation, all of these authorities that demand our devotion have been put in their place, their subordinate place, that in everything, Christ may be preeminent and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Today, the battle rages on. The rivals to Christ's supremacy have been decisively defeated, but not yet destroyed. So like me, when suffering comes, whether it's persecution, whether it's another form of suffering, a spiritual attack, something physical, something relational, my temptation is to put my confidence in a lesser identity. My temptation is to put my confidence and my hope in something other than Jesus. But this is how crafty our enemy is. It won't likely be an outright rejection of Jesus. It will be a subtle Jesus plus something else. That is one of the great sins of people. Friends, Jesus alone is supreme. Jesus alone is superior to anything else you are tempted to put your confidence and your hope in. This preacher, carried along by the Holy Spirit, was able to see what his people were tempted to do. They were, to, they were tempted to revert back to Judaism because of their affection for Moses and their fear of being identified with Jesus. You and I, every day, live with the temptation to revert back to something or someone that is less than Jesus. What is the remedy? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Fix your mind diligently on him. Now one last part of this verse, which I haven't got to yet. He says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If you're paying attention, there might be part of you that wonders. So if an individual 
doesn't hold fast their confidence or their boasting and the hope? Can they lose their salvation? I thought as a church, we believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. But this, this language kind of frightens me. Can a person lose their salvation? The answer is no. Not according to all of God's word. A person cannot lose their salvation. And the writer of this letter carried along by the Holy Spirit knows that. But he also knows something else. That it is very, very easy and very common for people to think they are really saved when they are not really saved. And that is one of the most dangerous places an individual can live. I've preached something like this before and had a man who was sitting in the balcony come down and say, I think that's me. We talked and there he said, I have never surrendered my life to Christ. I have never trusted in Christ alone for my salvation. Yet I thought I was saved. The preacher here is giving a warning that this letter written to Christians could still be heard by a group of people in this small church where some might not truly be believers. And if that was possible in a small house church, it is certainly possible in a church this size. How do you know if you're saved? You know you were saved when in your life you have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And because of your union with Christ, there's a desire that is in your life to bear fruit, so proving to be his disciples. In John 15, Jesus said, it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, so proving to be my disciples. He is not saying we have to be perfect. He is not saying we will never sin. What he is saying is that those who are truly elect, those are, who are truly part of God's people, those who are truly saved, are going to be women and men, children and elderly, who persevere, whose confidence remains in Christ alone, whose hope remains in Jesus alone. Will they fall? Yes. Will they stumble? Yes. Will they sin? Yes. But because of who they are in Christ, there is a desire in them to live a life that brings glory to God. And when those things in their life are not bringing glory to God, and a preacher confronts them, or a friend confronts them, or a book confronts them, ultimately the Holy Spirit confronts them, then in humility, a sign that they are a believer is that they want God's grace and mercy. And upon receiving his grace and mercy, they desire to follow their Lord. You're gonna hear this warning again in this letter. And it does not mean that people can lose their salvation. 
But it does mean there can be people who think they are saved who are not truly saved. If that burden is on your heart and you want assurance, that is a great sign. Leave today knowing you are assured. Pray with women or men in the corners. Talk to the people you came with. Meet with Brent or me or Jay Marty. Meet with us that we might share with you the assurance you can have in Christ. Now, if at this moment you're saying, I know I'm not a believer, I've never prayed that prayer, then as I close us in prayer, ask Jesus to save you. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to bring you to a place where you say, I believe in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. I write these things to you in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. If you pray that prayer today, then tell someone that you prayed that prayer. And what that means is that something that started way before you were even born, before the world was even created, is now coming to fruition because God behind the scenes has been moving to reveal to you that you're his own. You, my friend, are coming to saving faith. But this saving faith is not individualistic. He is saving you as he has saved other believers in this place to be a part of his house, his people for all eternity. Father in heaven, this is your word. If there are those in our midst who are concerned about whether they know you or not, reveal to them the need they have for you. And Holy Spirit, move in such a way as to save them now. Simply pray, Jesus, save me. Rescue me from my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord of my life. If there are those in our midst, Father, who thought they were saved, but today perhaps are wondering, let them seek clarity from you. And let them leave with assurance knowing whether they belong to you or not. Lord, for all who are in you today, would you cause us to think much greater thoughts about you and about our union with you? Would you destroy the individualistic realities of our life and lift our eyes to see that we are part of something so much greater that is about one permanent and primary identity. Jesus Christ, the one foundation. This we pray in your holy name, amen.